Isaiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Give your attention to God's perfect word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. People are going to die because of this. That's what the woman holding the abortion is healthcare sign said this week when asked what would happen if Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were overturned. People will die, oblivious to the 63 million children who have died because of Roe and Casey. And then a host on NPR used CDC data to argue that abortion is statistically safer than carrying a child to term. 
Because after all, only 20, uh, sorry, 23 out of every 100,000 pregnant women die during childbirth, while less than one out of 100,000 women die having an abortion. That's 22 fewer deaths if you ignore the 100,000 children. The lack of self-awareness people can have about the absurdity of their own arguments, about the selfishness and self-righteousness of their positions is sometimes staggering. I picked the abortion issue because it makes this blindness pretty easy to see. The thing about self-awareness, though, is that the lack of self-awareness is really easy to see in somebody else and a bit more challenging to see in ourselves. Isaiah is an invitation to hope in God's salvation. Only this holy God can save us from our sins. Only he can make us white as snow. But this invitation is never accepted. It cannot be accepted until and unless a person first becomes aware of the depth of their own sin. If we are to live, we must turn. And if we are going to turn, we must first see. The prophet Isaiah ministers to a people who by and large don't see. To minister to them about God's salvation, he must first minister about their sin. And that he does. But Judah doesn't want to hear it. Life was pretty good. And when life is pretty good, people are inclined to assume that they must be pretty good too. What about their lives possibly requires such drastic intervention from a holy God and a belligerent prophet? Isaiah's ministry begins near the end of King Uzziah's reign. Uzziah had overseen 50 years of political peace for Judah, the southern kingdom. His ministry would also span the reigns of three other kings after Uzziah. Verse 1's Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And though Uzziah had overseen all of this peace, trouble is on the horizon for Judah. The main challenge is going to be the Assyrian Empire. They grow in power and they put Judah at risk throughout Isaiah's ministry. But in the good times, Israel had forgotten about God. And so when the challenging times come, in large part, by the way, because they had forgotten God, Judah wasn't ready. In a crisis... Some people are willing to admit they need God. But before that crisis, when it's still far off in the distance over the horizon, few of us will admit that we couldn't handle it in our own strength if it came. Self-awareness just isn't that easy. As verses like 4 and 17 show, Isaiah will identify a wide variety of sins in Judah. They're doing a lot of things wrong. But every sin has at its core idolatry. And so idolatry is the focus of Isaiah's ministry. The people's lives are infested with idols. 
Ray Ortland wrote one of the commentaries I'm going to rely on a lot during this series. And he said, Isaiah, who understands the power of God, also understands the power of non-gods. Judah has begun to rely on non-gods to do what only God can do. And when things are going well in our lives, we think these idols are working. We think they're following through on their promises. They offer us the world. It's not until everything falls apart that we realize how empty those promises were and how powerless these idols are to save. Now, idolatry is present in every area of human life, but it is particularly on display in worship. And so as you can imagine, this is a great offense to God, and Isaiah, therefore, has a lot to say about worship. But we must always keep in mind that each of these themes flow from the first. Isaiah is a book about worship because it's a book about idolatry about idolatry because it's a book about sin, and sin because it's a book about salvation. Isaiah's own name means the Lord saves. He says to us, if we see our sin and turn toward God in repentance and faith, we will live. God will do what your idols cannot. He will save us. And the vision of salvation in Isaiah is dramatic. It includes personal salvation, us, one-on-one with God, absolutely. But it's more than that. It's about fixing all of creation. Isaiah ends chapter 65 and 66. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall endure Says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. He's going to redeem all of it. And he alone can do this. And Isaiah wants it to be clear to us that he will do this. But if we're going to see our sin clearly and be driven anywhere other than despair, we've also got to see God for who he is. One teacher writes that Isaiah wants to show us more of God and more of ourselves than we've ever seen before. And because of that, at times, Isaiah will read like a a contemporary of ours, like he wrote this last week. He's writing to God's people who have had it pretty easy for some time, but face now real threats to their peace of mind and way of life. Isaiah may be an ancient prophet, But he's a pretty relevant preacher. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, once put a spin on the catechism question, and he asked, what is the chief end of preaching? And he answered, it's to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. Isaiah gets that. Teacher Warren Wiersbe said that true prophets tell forth the word of God and foretell the works of God. It makes them like good doctors. They diagnose the case, they prescribe a remedy, and they warn you of what will happen if the prescription is ignored. That's Isaiah. The reformer John Calvin said that prophets explain more fully 
what is briefly contained in the Ten Commandments, that they apply those warnings and promises to the time of the hearer, to your own time, and bring forward more abundant evidence of the free covenant in Christ. For Isaiah, we'd say, check, check, check. He does all of these things, preacher and prophet, ancient and relevant. What Isaiah really puts forth is a new way of seeing the world. Not by his own wisdom. Verse 1 says we're getting the vision of Isaiah. He's delivering to us what was shown to him. An understanding of truth and reality that comes from God himself. And Isaiah's vision will be quite a contrast to the way we're accustomed to seeing things on our own. None of us sees rightly on our own. That's why we need God's revelation. That's why we need scripture and the spirit. His word is what opens up our vision to what is true about him and ourselves and therefore all of reality. And we need that vision. Because if we just had one, let's say we do finally begin to see our sin problem for what it is, we would never naturally be able to see the way out of it. But, so we also need the vision of him. Like Isaiah in chapter 6, the result of our initial self-awareness is that we are undone. Woe is me. In this context, Ortland says, Isaiah walks up to us and taps us on the shoulder as we're struggling with all of our problems, as we're struggling with our own guilt and shame, Isaiah taps us on the shoulder and says, there's another way to look at all this. Are you interested? Are we interested? Now, I don't mean to suggest that Isaiah will always be that easy for us to understand. The book is several thousand years old, written in a language into a literary culture quite different from our own. Martin Luther was right when he said that prophets have a strange way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so you can't make heads or tails of what they're saying. We'll make heads or tails of it, though. Other parts of Isaiah are going to be hard for us to read for a different reason. They'll hit us right between the eyes. Isaiah's favorite title for God, you heard it this morning, he'll use it 24 more times, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah takes God's holiness seriously. And that's something we're not accustomed to in the year 2022. And the flip side of that being Isaiah has little patience for those who do not think God needs to be taken seriously in his holiness. Isaiah's language about sin will be intense. It's intended to wake sinners up from their spiritual slumber. The first six chapters of this book are going to highlight the sins of the people, and it will be relentless. And then the next six chapters are going to highlight the sins of the people's leaders. It is intense. Verse 2 sets the tone of all of this from God's perspective. Look how it starts. His children have rebelled against him. Incidentally, that's bookends for Isaiah. Rebellion is the theme of the last verse of Isaiah as well. It's a terrifying picture of eternal suffering for unrepentant rebels. 
Because from God's perspective, from start to finish, rebellion is the problem. My people have rebelled against me. And in this context, Isaiah will highlight the people's rebellion, but he will bring some unexpected good news. God saves rebels. There is a way to live with God after rebellion, and that way begins with the self-awareness that we are, in fact, rebels. Verse 2 is a call to attention, not to the rebels. They're not listening yet. He calls heaven and earth to attention. He's calling them to see what his own people do not. Children I have brought up, but they have rebelled against me. We could say, God's people are just living their lives. Lighten up, Isaiah. They're not doing anything particularly bad. They don't feel rebellious. They're not down protesting the temple. They're bringing sacrifices. And into this, God says, they have turned their hearts from me. They are rebels. Verse 3 says, even the animals know their masters and turn to them. I joke with my children, kids, about chickens. The only thing I ever say to our chickens always begins with stupid chickens. They are the dumbest animals we have ever had. The coins have their own experience, but they are stupid chickens. But even the stupid chicken knows that when Daphne comes out and has the Tupperware, she's going to be giving them something good, some vegetable scraps. Isaiah says the animals learn to return to their master, and yet God's own people rebel. They chase after idols, convinced that these idols can protect and satisfy. They're not persuaded by God's offer of perfect love. They're looking, we're looking, no, I mean they're looking for something more aligned with their own desires than what God desires for them. And this is important. Isaiah is not a book about pagans denying that Yahweh is God. It's a book about the people of God knowing intellectually that Yahweh is God and yet turning their hearts away from him. Sure, they were showing up for worship. They're offering sacrifices. They're doing the rituals their religion requires. Their hearts are not turned toward God. They have no desire to be in relationship with God. Religion to them has become a series of lifeless actions, not the response of a grateful heart for God's invitation to hope. And that approach to religion is still common today. And that approach to religion, I hope you see in this chapter, it hurts God. He cares that we feel that way, that we live that way. And while the people are blind to it, God is not. In verses 2 through 9, Isaiah calls out the people's sinful approach to God in worship. But that, that tone isn't condemnation. It's lament. God sees what his people are doing and he laments My people are putting their trust and their hope in idols rather than in me. They're choosing a path of lifelong fear and anxiety and insecurity. They're choosing a path of eternal destruction. 
They don't bring their needs to me until all other options have failed. And when they come to me, it's not because they delight in me. It's to get what they want. God sees this. And Isaiah wants God's people to see it as well. He paints the picture with two vivid images. The first one in verses 5 and 6 is of a man beaten so badly he doesn't even recognize that he's in dire need of help. The the bruises and the sores and the wounds have drained so much of his life away he doesn't even see the desperation of his own condition. And the second is verses 7 and 8. It's of a nation that has been sieged and laid waste. A once secure and proud people who have been utterly destroyed and shamed. In fact, he says, if not for God's mercy, there would not be one single survivor. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, the people would be completely destroyed for their wickedness. That's not physically true yet of Judah, but it is spiritually true. And they don't see it. I'll come back to that in a moment, but it is important to pause here for a moment and remember why Isaiah is calling on the people to see. Why is he so harsh with them? It's because if they are to turn and live, they must first see. If they think that they're doing fine, they will never turn. They will never be saved. What matters is not what we think of our condition. It's what God thinks of our condition. And that's what Isaiah is trying to tell them. We need God to convict us of our sin. Judah doesn't like it. Isaiah is not going to be real popular with the people throughout this book. You can probably tell. But I'll tell you, little has changed. In the church today, among the people of God, most people still run away from conviction. We don't want to see our sin. We don't want to confront plainly and specifically our rebellion against God. Judge not is what we say to anyone who tries to talk to us about our sin. My sin is between me and God, we say, while keeping our sin as far from God in conversation as we are from the neighbor trying to love us. Legalists are what we think of or say about others in the church who are trying to take sin and holiness seriously. It feels more dangerous in a church to say, I choose not to watch that, or I choose not to participate that, than to say the opposite. The mere presence of others attempting to honor God must be attacked lest they make us feel our rebellion against God. Isaiah has a very different view of conviction. He sees conviction as a blessing. Because if you can see, you can turn. And if you turn, you will live. This will be a long quote, but it is too good to paraphrase. Conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon, piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out. It is a health-giving injury. David said when he didn't confess, his bones wasted away. 
Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with light we don't want to see, truth we're afraid to admit, and guilt we prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty, our willful blindness, our favorite excuses. It's the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Conviction of sin is the merciful God declaring war on the false peace we settle for. It's our escape from malaise to joy, from attending church to worship, and from faking it to authenticity. Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over our wounds is life. Why does Isaiah want God's people to see their sin? Why are we about to read 12 chapters about sin? Because in conviction of sin is life. God doesn't show us our sins so that we can be driven to the despair of self-awareness. I heard somebody say the other day, it's such a, I don't know who he stole it from, but it's such a great line. That's, uh, it, was, it was Bill Marsh. You all heard it last week. It's, the, it's the, the old switcheroo that Satan does on us where before we commit a sin, Satan says, that's not a sin. It's not so bad to entice us to do it. And then as soon as we do it, Satan says, how could you do that? God could never love you again. That's where Satan wants to leave us. But that's not where Isaiah leaves us. He shows us our sin to invite us to hope, to see, and to turn is to live. That's why he blasts God's people with the reality of their rebellion. And when they counter, what, what, we're not doing anything so bad. We worship. We sacrifice. That's why Isaiah just unloads on them in this passage. You worship? You worship? God says, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, you want to talk about your worship? Let's talk about your worship. The hypocrisy meter has blown past the danger zone. So in verses 11 through 15, Isaiah goes into full warfare. One of the reformers said, the more hypocrites flatter themselves and have no fear of God, the more we should wield against them thunderbolts from our mouths. Isaiah agreed. And line by line and act by act, he tells them how God views their worship. They think it's beautiful. God thinks it's repulsive. They think it's impressive. He thinks it's pathetic. They think it's worship of God. He sees the truth that it is idolatry and worship of self. Because true worship, whatever practice you are bringing forth in worship, singing, prayer, listening to the preaching, uh, participation in the sacraments, the fellowship, whatever practice of, of worship that you are bringing, it is not the worship of God if it did not begin by drawing near to God in repentance and faith. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The spirit that comes 
of repentance-born righteousness is the only way we can draw near to God. And I don't care if you sing hymns or contemporary worship choruses. I don't care if you practice the sacraments weekly or once a year. I don't care if you sacrifice the, the crummy goats from the pasture or the fatted calves and bulls like they were doing. If you did not first draw near to God in repentance, none of it matters. God cares deeply how he is worshipped. The what we do matters. But it only matters after we get to the how. The how we do it is the whole thing. One man calls this other type of worship hollowed out. It's been emptied out of its power and its significance, and it's just going through the motions. And how we approach worship can give us some pretty strong indicators on if the worship we're approaching is real or hollowed out. Our preparations or lack thereof for the Lord's day might tell us whether or not worship is important enough to prepare for. We show up, but did we check out? Even the posture of our bodies says something about the posture of our hearts. There's Nothing meaningful happening here. We do not engage with God in worship when we don't care whether or not he engages with us. Fellowship with the people of God doesn't matter if to us the people of God don't matter either. See, Isaiah doesn't start with worship because it's the only place where our rebellion and idolatry are revealed. It's quite the opposite, actually. He starts with worship because this hollowed-out religion in worship never stops there. It's never confined to worship. We were made to worship. We're all going to worship something. We have a certain amount of worship every single week that we're going to do. And when we can't be moved enough by the love of God to worship him like it matters, it's because we used up our zeal for real worship somewhere else. And these idols that we spent the week worshiping, they also determined how we lived. What and how you worship will reveal how you're going to engage with your family and your work and your relationships and all that you do. Because if God doesn't really matter here in worship, if the love of God for you in Christ is not enough for you to get up for worship and ask God to draw near to you, then the love of God for you in Christ isn't going to change how you treat anyone around you during the week either. Wash yourselves. He pleads. Passive worship reveals passive repentance. Judah didn't think their worship was passive because look at all this activity that they're doing. But God saw what was hidden and he calls them to see. Wash yourselves. He pleads. This is a book of devastating analysis of our sin. And it must be if it's going to be a real invitation to hope. We must see if we are to turn, and we must turn if we are to live. In worship, our goal ought to be to draw near to God because he draws near to us. 
And that drawing near, born out of repentance, is not a, it's not a one-time event. It's the heartbeat of the Christian life. Genuine worship and the holy life that flow from it are the result of genuine repentance. Seeing the holiness of God and the ugliness of our sin and rebellion, we develop a sense of urgency to be right with God. We see how much we sin against God and against one another. And there in that deep, deep hole of our self-awareness of sin, we look up expecting God to condemn us. And what we get is an invitation to hope. You have seen. Now turn and live. Repentance is the key to peace with God. It's the prompt to genuine worship, and it's the power for holy living. Repentance, worship, holiness, these are not the means by which we save ourselves. They're how we show God our desire to draw near to him out of our grateful hearts of him having drawn near to us. As this morning's passage has been a summary of the whole book, so verses 18 to 20 are a summary of God's invitation to hope. I love this paraphrase. Turn to me, God says. You're worse than you think, but I'm better than you think. And that's it. That's the book of Isaiah. We're worse than we think. But praise God, he is better than we ever imagined. And in worship, we have the opportunity to encounter that God. And not just in worship. Don't we want to encounter him daily? Don't we want to abide in the true vine, what we just talked about in John? Isaiah is calling God's people to a series of encounters with the living God because that's what a relationship is. It's a series of encounters with someone who will change what you think and what you do and who you are. This relationship requires us to see. Isaiah will show us the holiness of God. He'll show us the depth of our sin, the reality of our condition. And this relationship requires us to turn. Our affections, our loves have to turn away from those idols and toward the life-giving God who alone can save his people from their sins. And the good news of Isaiah, the gospel of Isaiah, is that if we do this, we will live. It says right here, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So let's listen. 